I have. Um, hang on, I have to do. I have to do cat excav- excavation. <laughs> one one second. Kirk needs to depussify all animals and children from the room. Um. Oh my God! There's a huge raccoon right outside my window. <laughs> <laughs> this is an he's enormous he's like bear sized what's his name <laughs> what's his name I, I don't know he's he's burrowing for bugs oh now there's a huge possum it's like a zoo out there <laughs> you should charge people to come to your house <laughs> tonight on Media Loper Bebop we look at why popular music always ends up critically acclaimed also, ebooks are outselling A books. What does this mean for the future of the book industry, not to mention people who love to read? And finally, Major League Baseball is either going to add another round of playoffs, realign, or both. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? All this and Tim Gaskell has Lucinda Williams, My Morning Jacket, and Neil Young in the mix. On Medialoper Bebop Episode 8, please stop believing. You didn't even do a spoiler alert? Oh, for Tim's for Tim's in the mix? <laughs> Just spell it out. Yeah, okay. Thanks a lot. I'm done. I'm hanging up. I got nothing to look forward to. Nothing to to look forward to. Nothing to listen to now. We know it. (laughs) I'm your host, Jim Connolly, and the annoying people with me are Tim Gaskell. I'm I'm, I'm here. I'm still reading uh, Wiener Pulls Out Headlines. And uh, birthday boy, Kirk Biglione. Yes, I am. I was having a discussion over Twitter with a couple of guys from the Audio Assault podcast, Oswald and Jer, and they were extolling the virtues of Motley Crue. <laughs> How old are they? They're in their 20s. You have When you refer to them throughout at least, at least the remainder of this podcast, you must prepend the word young before their names. <laughs> yes. With young Oswald and Jer from Audio Assault podcast, and they were extolling the virtues of Motley Crue. And it got me thinking, how could Motley Crue, a band who seemed like a bad Kiss ripoff at the time, have somehow mutated into a band where the first line of their all-music bio calls them influential? I mean, influ- <laughs> <laughs> influential for hair metal, but still. Also, how could Journey's late 70s and early 80s albums now somehow be considered classics and be used for TV shows like Glee and in TV shows like The Sopranos? Then it struck me. Maybe it's a function of popular but not critically acclaimed artists to also end up critically acclaimed over time. After all, the very people who are now writing music criticism were most likely exposed to these artists at a very young and impressionable age. So wouldn't it make sense for them to have an irrational fondness for these artists? Hell, we did it with the monkeys. While Baby Boomers saw them as a cynically assembled Beatles ripoff, we saw them through the eyes of their big hit show and well-written pop songs. So doesn't it make sense that just as we see Motley Crue and Journey as cynical ripoffs, people who were kids, or hell, weren't even born, are actually responding to their initial exposure to these artists and making up their own excuses for why these bands, which even now make me cringe, are actually critically acclaimed? Thoughts? Hang on, wait a minute. <clears throat> are you telling me that Loverboy makes you cringe even now? Yes. Okay, me too. Um, <laughs> now, Journey, oh, Journey is such a difficult one for us. There's um, nothing difficult about Journey. <laughs> They sucked in the 80s. They suck in the aughts. 70s. And the teens, they suck, they suck. 
Yeah. They just well, suck. There's, okay, there's, there's, no, there's no discussion here. Okay, well, there is a little bit, because Jim and I, let's just recount this real quickly. Jim and I saw, and I tried to look this up online, and it basically, the, as far as I can tell, that we saw Steve Perry and Journey open up for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in 1977, <laughs> was it? Yes, yeah, so it was 1977. 77. Looking back, I, tr- I tried to trace the history of this, and it gets a bit fuzzy towards Steve Perry's first actual shows. And what it comes down to is we saw either the first proper show that he did, I think he might have done like a club date with him or something, a warm-up date, but we saw virtually one of the first shows Steve Perry ever did as part of Journey. But the thing is, it came about 30 minutes into the show. Right. Was Journey the headliner at the no, show? No, they were the opener. The, the opening band. Who were they opening for? Emerson. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. We started talking about Journey, and I went away to my special place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to point out here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer are another one of those bands that just like... They're invisible they get better with age. Well, we were okay. So, so first of all, let me just point out the only thing we knew about Journey at the time was they were a Santana spinoff band. Yeah, it was it was Neil Sean who played as a teenager, played with Carlos Santana. Greg Raleigh was the vocalist. They, they were a great band musically. They were phenomenal. They did three kind of prog rock, heavy rock albums prior to their pop turn with Steve Perry. That didn't really sell well. They were kind of critically, you know, on the fence. They were kind of okay. I kind of like them, you know, in their own way. This remember, this is pre-Steve Perry. And when we saw them live, I thought, God, these guys are really good. You know, Neil Sean, he's a great guitar player. You know, these guys can, are really good. They got some really good instrumentals, and you know, I, I kind of liked them as an opening band. And then they said, we'd like to bring out our new singer. Mr. Steve Perry, and this guy walks on stage, and he's got these powder blue or baby <laughs> blue tight pants on, and you know he starts rubbing his ass and stuff, and, he's, and their whole their whole tone changes, and you know Jim and I at that point in our musical um, lives, you know we knew the difference between kind of you know real bands and sellouts, quote unquote, and <clears throat> it seemed to me they, they 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 just stepped over the line, they jumped the shark right in front of our eyes. And we were like, oh, my God, this is terrible. So I want to point out, Kirk, that, that, that we were 14. And even then, we could tell that Journey was not as authentic as Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's brain salad surgery is one of the greatest albums of all times, Kirk. I will not hear a word against them. <laughs> don't even attempt. I, you know, I can't get worked up over Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. <laughs> fine. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. I'm, fi- I'm fine with that. Journey, on the other hand. <laughs> Journey, I understand in completely. And the, here's the thing. You know, because Jim and I took our music quite seriously, and we were going to high school, and we understood that 90% of our fellow classmates didn't take music seriously. They took the radio seriously. And what was on the radio was good music, quote-unquote. And so we to that, to us, it was an affront to our ears and our senses and our musical sensibilities, and so we did. We never got on board with it. We 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 never had any kind of love for Journey at all. We'd turn them off. If, if somebody talked about them, we'd say, "Oh fuck that Journey sucks," you know. And it just passed us right over. And but here's the thing, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a minute, Jim. If you want to jump in, no, here. go. You're doing fine, Tim. But over the years, stuff like that becomes so ingrained in the popular culture and kind of our, our cultural DNA and everything. 
after a while, the what offended us as kids kind of becomes innocuous. And once it becomes innocuous, it's no longer offensive because you know we're, we were measuring it up against other music that we liked at the time, and, and against that music, it paled in comparison. Which you know? in a year, by the way, was punk rock. Yeah, exactly. So you know we were we were kind of moving out of that phase anyway, and we just never got on board. So, so but, that, that innocuousness kind of for us, you know, it's like okay, journey. I could, see, the the thing is, is it that very soon we were able to ignore them. Yes. Well, so for me, my my young teenage job working in the in the kitchen in the pizza parlor, uh, it was it pretty much came down to you're going to listen to music while you make pizzas in the 120 degree kitchen in Fresno in the summer, <laughs> <laughs> and it pretty much it's like being in hell. I literally, it's like being in hell in hell. You're already in hell because you're in Fresno, and then you're in a 120 degree pizza kitchen in the middle of summer. And so it came down to Journey versus The Clash. That really was the choice, Journey versus The Clash. And it was 14 guys for Journey and me for The Clash. <laughs> That's the only reason The Clash were even represented. <laughs> and after that, no more Journey. No more Journey. Believe me, I probably have listened to more Journey than both of you combined. I'm sorry. Oh, I don't think so. You didn't yeah, go. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? It wasn't willingly. Yeah. So, so there is no, there is no, there is no coming back from that. Is what you're saying, Kirk? Not for me, but so I could see how you know now the music is of a certain age, and you know Hollywood is about reinventing the past. I mean, there, you know, everything's a remake. Everything's got to be, you know, some sort of reference to something that happened earlier. It's, it's so they're just mining that era of music the way they yep. mine everything else including that era of hollywood and and for 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 younger people <laughs> who weren't there who didn't fight the war against motley crew they need to listen to the vaseline's i hate the 80s i mean let's the, but let's not beat around that this this whole argument has been going back since at least the 50s probably in the jazz age to to different degrees starting with you know the original rockers the the bill haley chuck berry Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and stuff, and then the the kind of the 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 crooners that came out in the early '60s that were kind of covering black music and making a lot of money off the backs of you know great soul singers and stuff, and kind of with their that that's kind of like that that was kind of the the version then, and I'm sure there are people like Jim and I who were like into that music, and then they saw what was happening and they rejected that, and then when the Beatles and the Stones and everybody came along that turned it back again, just like punk turned it all back again, you know, with us later in the 70s. So, don't, but do you think that there's stuff that you loved as a kid that regardless of the quality, you still love as an adult because it just ingrained itself? You, well, like Kiss? Well, exactly like Kiss for you. Or Elton John for me. Or the yeah, Beatles. both. Or the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, Okay. <clears throat> I think the Beatles, I think we're always safe with the Beatles. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, there are some bands that, you know, fall into this category, the journey kind of category for whatever reason. Okay, let's talk about a safer one that maybe we could all agree on. Cheap Trick. Sticks? Oh, no, Cheap Trick. But see, I thought Cheap Trick were awesome and authentic at the time. Exactly. Well, I'm not saying they weren't, but... They were also popular. They weren't, 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But were they were not were they critically accepted though? Oh yeah, I think so. I think those first three albums have always had good, always got good write-ups because they were real pop, but they're real hard rock at the same time. They they that they, they struck that balance. Wait, wait, wait! I have to tell the story about the time I saw Journey and the Smiths. <laughs> okay, now was, wait a was second. This, was that a night in hell that you spent? <laughs> it was uh, 120 degrees <laughs> in the pizza kitchen <laughs> with more with Morrissey <laughs> and Steve Perry and Steve Perry. Oh my God! I did see Steve. I did see Steve Perry at P.F. Chang's in Burbank. Uh, yeah, and he was a dick to the waitress. Ooh. Okay. See, Don't, I feel much better about my extremist view, holding my extremist views for decades now. Well, you know, he's not even their singer anymore. They found they 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 got some short Filipino guy as opposed to Steve Perry, who is amazing. If you've <laughs> seen him on YouTube, you know, Tim, I have not searched Journey songs out on YouTube. No, no, you got to see this guy. <laughs> it's just interesting from a cultural perspective. That's all. Tim, you're revealing things about yourself that maybe you don't want to be public. Yes, a small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train Moving on. <laughs> According to Amazon, electronic books are now outselling acoustic books. So let me ask another variation on a question that I've asked recently on this podcast. Is print dead? No. I think it's on life support. There are many different kinds of books. Um, and some of them will go digital very quickly and already have. And some of them will never go digital. And some of them will go digital in a way that they become something we don't recognize as being a book. Without really thinking about it, you think that ebooks would sell, the types of books would sell in the same percentage as analog books or, or print books would but uh, apparent but uh, but adult fiction has a much higher percentage of e the yeah. ebook market than it does the print market why is that well so it's like the william this is like a perfect place to use the william gibson quote the future's already here it's just not evenly distributed <laughs> um right now all of the growth is in or the main growth is in narrative fiction um narrative being the key because the early generation of e-reading devices and e-reading systems are optimized towards narrative, long-form narrative. Um, and fiction, I believe, if you broke out that fiction number, you would see that a lot of the growth was coming from genre fiction. Some genres in, uh, specifically is doing really well, as opposed to nonfiction, uh, which is not growing as rapidly in digital. And part of the reason that, in the blog post you're referring to is by Dominique Rocca. She's the CEO of uh, Sourcebooks. Sourcebooks is one of the largest independent publishers in the United States. So they're like not one of the big six, but they're big. And they publish a broad range of books. So Dominique has access to a lot of data. Uh, publishers are notoriously private about their data, so for a publisher to come out and reveal as much data as she has is really enlightening. Um, and she broke out her nonfiction category to explain or to show some of the subcategories within nonfiction that are not doing well as ebooks. And when you look at 
the the subcategories within nonfiction, it becomes obvious why they're not doing well as ebooks. The number one category for nonfiction is is our reference books. Reference books don't work as linear ebooks. There, you need a random access system. Um, reference books work. Reference type material works really well on the web. And this is what I meant by some of the transition we're going to see from books, from a book or P book to digital is not necessarily going to be something you recognize as being a book. It might turn into a website or a piece of software or some kind of application that doesn't look like a book. Whereas ebooks, the ebooks Amazon is talking about when they talk about selling more ebooks than print books, they're talking about these linear books that are largely, it appears, uh, long-form narrative. So is that a failing right now of the ebook readers that they work better for linear when we've actually had 15 years of digital teaching us to be non-linear? Well, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is. Uh, the, the standard for ebooks is called EPUB, and EPUB 3 is coming out later this year, and EPUB 3 is going to be a big leap forward towards bridging the gap between what we consider to be a, an ebook today and what we consider to be the web. The big challenge is because of the way the book business works, it's all about packaging things and selling them right. as un units. So, really, what you have to do, what EPUB is all about, and some people bristle when you say it this way, is it's about bottling the web. <laughs> you take EPUB basically is HTML and CSS, and you're packaging up web pages um, and selling them as books, and most of them now happen to be linear. The reading systems are fairly primitive, especially when you look at e-ink devices. They don't do color. Right. They don't have the same refresh rate as an LCD monitor. They're, you know, on the, on the Kindle device, uh, you have web access, but it's not anything you would ever want to use. <laughs> I have, a, I have a quick question. Do they, have they broken down like the Kindle readership or the Kindle ownership uh, by, by sex? I mean, do, do women tend to <clears throat> use it more? Um, I'm not sure Amazon has released that. Um, we know that publishers that, that we know personally who sell books to women are seeing enormous growth. But that's, you know, that's not really a good way to me measure the total size of the market. Oh, I think by people we know is the best way to measure anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, part, part of the problem is, part of the, okay, back to the original story, is that Amazon says they're now selling more e-books than p-books. Or a-books, as Jim calls them. <laughs> um, Everyone's taking Amazon. A lot of people in the publishing industry are skeptical of anything Amazon says. Because it well, serves them well to say that. Right. But they also might be telling the truth. Right. right. <laughs> Clearly, a shift is taking place. Uh, the problem is the, the industry, the, the book business, is so dispersed that... and and. There really is no centralized place to get the kind of data 
that would tell you what's happening to the whole market or even segments within the market. It's just, it's like pieced together from a million different sources and publishers don't release this information. Sometimes publishers don't even have this information. So when you have a publisher who actually reveals something more than just like the most basic sales numbers, um, that's news. Uh, so we don't really know. I mean, a lot of people will throw out their theories and maybe there's some kind of survey to back it up, but there's no official market data to tell you one way or the other. I have my theories. and they everyone, are. everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd like to hear Tim's theories. My theories, well, basically, <clears throat> a lot of women buy and use the Kindle and they that's why it's it supports and uh, is used primarily for fiction because that's primarily what they read. Men... But men read more nonfiction. They read more of their World War II books and, like that. <laughs> and you know, I've never actually read a World War II book yet. Just wait. Wait till you hit like fifty or fifty-five. I don't. And then think you get in. Then you get into your World War II phase. I read a lot of nonfiction. I've always read a lot of nonfiction. So that's that 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 of your your terribly sexist stereotype is somewhat true, <laughs> but not World War II books. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Barnes and Noble is claiming that they that the color nook appeals to women, and the reason they're claiming it does is because they have the magazines that women love. Exactly. If you Pause. want to stereotype Pause. women as, as yeah. magazine readers, uh, hey, wait a second. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about women. I'm. <laughs> I read magazines. I'm a huge magazine reader, Kirk. Are you? Th wait, what? <laughs> <clears throat> so. But uh, long form, some types of nonfiction are doing well in ebooks, and I mean, there's 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 long form linear narrative nonfiction, and that's a natural thing to transition. And I think that's just a matter of time. It depends on the publisher, right? Too. Like you know, Malcolm Gladwell is going to sell a lot of ebooks. I, I, I want to buy Nixon Land as an ebook as opposed to a paperback. In fact, that's a, you don't want to carry the big hardback around or the even worse, a trade paperback of a big thick book. So, are you going to get the regular ebook or are you going to get the media enhanced ebook? I haven't be, made the decision beyond that I'm probably going to get the ebook. There's a version where when you're reading the chapter about the Nixon Kennedy debate, there's actually the video footage of the debate in the chapter. See, I, I think I'd, I'd like that if it's embedded in the page and I can, just like a web page, I can click on it, see it, and then move on. Now, that's in the Kindle edition, but you can only read it on the iPad. Yeah, the <laughs> iPad, yeah exactly. Um, well, here's, here's the thing. I mean, talking about these enhanced editions, I mentioned this before, but I did read the Tina Fey biography, the enhanced, enhanced edition, and it had, like, extra photos and an audio chapter that she she reads and such. So, I, I I did like it. I did enjoy it. It was you know it had color. It had black and white. It had everything. So, <laughs> so you bought this on your iPad. I got it for the iBook. Yeah. So you bought the iBook version, not the Kindle version, because I think the Kindle right. version probably would have had the same features, but they would have only been readable on the iPad. Actually, Tim, the Kindle version, Tina Fey comes to your house and reads it to you. Ooh, this is that the deluxe edition? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Unless you draw the lucky number and Tracy Morgan comes to your house and makes <laughs> it to you. This is Jim Connolly with a musical moment to die for. In the middle of their epic, unstoppable late 70s versions of Rosalita, like this one from the Roxy Theater in West Hollywood on July 7th, 1978, 
Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band would drop into a variation of the I Can't Turn You Loose riff, and Bruce would introduce the band members one by one, like the MC at an old soul review, making jokes as he went. But he always saved the best for last. Clarence Clemens passed away this week at the age of 69. His hooky sax riff and epic solo is a key part of what I think, pound for pound, was the greatest live musical act of our time. In their prime, every single concert by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band wasn't just three plus hours of great music, but was also a great show. Chock full of drama, comedy, tragedy, but always, always, always uplifting and life affirming in the very best possible sense. The effect of Clarence Clemens on that music on that show and on the persona and iconization of Bruce Springsteen was incalculable. So in essence, Bruce was paying him back night after night with the hilariously over-the-top introductions. And putting Clarence at front and center like that was a huge part of why the big man became an icon in his own right, one of the most beloved figures in popular music, and why Clarence Clemens will be missed tremendously. That was Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band with Rosalita Live from the Roxy in July of 1978, a song that contains a musical moment to die for. Okay, according to a report by ESPN's Buster Olney, Major League Baseball is considering realigning from the current unbalanced divisional structure, where some divisions have four teams and some have six, and the National League has 16 teams and the American League only has 14, they're going to change all that so both leagues have 15 teams. Interleague throughout, and five teams from each league would make the playoffs. And probably to make this happen, either the Astros or the Marlins would be moved. What do you guys think about baseball adding an extra team to the playoffs and also possibly realigning? Hang on, did you say that the teams would be moved physically or just in leagues? I'm sorry, leagues. The Astros or the Mar- they're, they're saying the Astros or the Marlins would be moved from the National League to the American League, so both leagues would have 15 it's, teams. This is, un, this is unnatural. Everyone knows that the Brewers are an American League team disguised still, as a National League team. They I, need to go back to the American League. Exactly. I still consider them an American League team because the one thing that I hate about baseball right now, and it drives me mad every time I look at the standings, is the National League Central has six teams and the American League West has four. It's not fair. You you know, you have a 25% chance or one in four chance getting in versus a one in six chance getting into the playoffs. So I'm I'm kind of into the idea of making it even. The, the only difficult thing is if you've got 15 teams in each league, obviously it's odd, an odd number. <clears throat> but um, when it comes time to the playoffs, um, I think you have to stick to the even – uh, you know the three teams, the three division leaders, plus one wild card, because you don't want to create uh, an extra week of playoffs where the um, <clears throat> the team with the best record has to sit out and wait for that first round of playoffs. It kind of works with I understand it with football because you can rest up and get better 
But in baseball, you find a rhythm and you need to stay in that. So that doesn't that doesn't seem like a great idea. To and, me. and a perfect example of that is a couple years ago when the Colorado Rockies won like what thirty out of thirty one games, and then they swept through the through through the playoffs, and then had to sit for a week before the World Series yep. started. And then they got blown out in four. Exactly. So how would you real? What team would you put in the American League West? Why not? Oh, the American League West. Yeah. Well, the American League West is the smallest division. What team would you add? Diamondback. The original deal. I don't know if you guys remember the original deal with Arizona getting into the league in the first place was they were going to revert to back to the American League after a certain amount of time, and somehow got vetoed or something. Uh, Also, why not Washington? Since they were an American League team. All through their history, the Washington team was always an American League team until they just happened to take over the riding corps of the Expos. Exactly. Well, but it's the West would be the part there. Right. I get that. Washington is not West. But the original National League West had the Atlanta Braves in it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> I know. It was re- and it wasn't Cincinnati I think in Cincinnati that. was also in the National League West. That's right. So... West was kind of, you know, relative. Actually, it wasn't even relative. It was arbitrary. And and so, you know, 40 years later, when, when travel's, you know, a little bit better and the, the teams are chartering planes, it's not as big of a deal, I don't think, to have teams in your, in your quote-unquote division not necessarily be specifically regional. Well, I don't know. I like the idea of all the rivalries, though. Uh, the other thing I want to know is what happens with the designated hitter. Do we think it's run its course? DH was one of the few Charlie Finley ideas that baseball accepted. <laughs> wow. It was. It was his idea. The other idea was orange baseballs. Designated runner, too, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Designated runner. He had all kinds of ideas. Only one of them was accepted, and it was DH, and that's not the one they should have accepted. The weird thing was... His pitchers could hit. In 1971, Catfish Hunter won 21 games and batted 350. What? what? In 1971, Catfish Hunter won 21 games and batted 350. In 1970, Bob Gibson won 23 games and hit 303. No way. Yes. Anyway, I, I'm I'm all for change, whatever uh, whatever they think of. I I do like the idea. They got to even up the divisions. If nothing else, they got to stick the the Diamondbacks into the American League West at the very. So least. no Astros, not the Marlins, the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks. Oh, you know what? Hang on, no, that doesn't work. I mean, you got to take the Astros and put them. You got to put you somehow. You got basically you got to take the. Um, the cent- Central League uh, division, I mean, and make it five Exactly. Teams. And the so, Astros, by the way, were in the National League West originally, they so they could be in the American League West. There you go. That'll work. Tim Gaskell has That'll solved work. baseball's realignment. Boom. Who's going to send this off to Bud? Speaking of which, hang on one second. This podcast is a presentation of Medialoper Bebop. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of the Commissioner of Media Loper Bebop is prohibited. And now it's time for In the Mix. This week, Tim Gaskell tells us what's in his mix. What's in my mix? Okay, um, Neil Young, his new album, another old album. This is a live album featuring tracks from his tour after he released the Old Ways album back in the... uh, 
kind of mid mid eighties, was it? Eighty five. It came out. Yeah, eighty five. And <clears throat> so it's got a great, got a bunch of great country players on it. And it's doing songs from that album, some other standards and stuff, but also um, some old great songs from Neil's past, like "Flying on the Ground Is Wrong," which is an old Buffalo Springfield song. It's rather good. The iTunes version comes with about uh, half a dozen live video tracks as well, if you get the deluxe version. So it's got 12 new songs, I mean, 12 live songs, and then about, um, uh, sorry, 18, 18 songs altogether, 12 songs live musically, and then another six featuring the video versions of those songs. So it's a, it's a, wonderful uh great thing if you're into neil if you're a completist of course you have to have it if you're not a completist maybe not but it kind of uh it works for me so a couple of things about this yes do you either of you guys remember when we recorded farm aid yes and neil young had this band on farm aid and i remember the like the version of southern pacific was absolutely amazing it was totally different than the version that was on reactor but it was it was rocking and it was it was chugging and it was like a much better representation of what that song was about But yeah, so you've got a mixture of like really, um, you, you know, it's really rootsy country stuff. And then you've got this very standard Neil Young sound. I always so, thought that album was really underrated, that Old Ways album. I lo- I really like the album. And um, I see, I had nothing wrong with it. I think, um, you know, the fact when he got sued by Gess Geffen sounding like Neil Young, um, you know, my feeling was, well, you know, he's not like he hasn't done country-ish things before, so... They sued him. They sued him for trans, Tim. Don't you know? Yeah, another. You know, that's going to come up later when we talk about our classic albums that were misunderstood. <laughs> what else you got there? So the next thing, uh, Circuital, the new album from My Morning Jacket, um, is a wonderful return to form. I find, and the title track is like a seven-minute song, and it's just it's just a wonderful. It's just a wonderful piece. It starts out slow and kind of builds and kicks in. And you know, when when they find that groove, they're they're really wonderful to listen to. I love this band. I don't think they've put out the. The, the all-time classic album yet, but every album has uh, several great tracks. And uh, this album is uh, one of their stronger efforts, in my opinion. And um, I've only, again, I've only just got it in the last uh, week, but uh, I do recommend it. The other thing is the Lucinda Williams album, Blessed, which came out uh, a couple of months ago now but to me this represents 
perhaps one of her strongest, if not her strongest efforts, um, up there with car wheels on a gravel road. You know, Vanessa, um, Lucinda Williams. Vanessa Williams? You'll fix that in the mix, too. We'll fix that. No, 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 no. I want to talk about the, the Freudian slip between Lucinda Williams and Vanessa Williams. Did you, are, you, are, you, are you remembering the Lucinda Williams nudes from, yes. from Penthouse? That's why she was disqualified from right. uh, being Miss America. So. And Holy also Tracy Williams. Lords, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Um, anyway, there's not a there's this is one of those albums. There's not a weak cut on this album. I do recommend it highly. There's a deluxe version that has, um, I think what they call the kitchen tapes or something, where she does like acoustic demo versions of every song on the album as well, which is fine. That's more for collectors only. I don't you don't really need that. But um, this is a great album. I believe it's produced by Don Was, and it, it it's just perfect in from top to bottom. And I can't recommend it enough. So beautiful. Oh, sir. Just one more thing. One more thing. Kirk. Okay, I need you two to be honest with me. Okay. You guys reuse your passwords, don't you? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> pretty, pretty much everywhere, right? You use the same password or the same two or three passwords across almost every site you access. I change my passwords every hour or so, and I have like two or like 40 or 50 rotating for all the different sites. Every yeah, hour. I have a special app that goes in and changes my passwords for me. So what are you using, Tim? Um, it's a special, it's a special um, kind of password app that's so secret I can't even tell you about it. Okay, this is my one more thing. One is, I'm serious, you guys. <laughs> Have you seen what's happening to Sony, Gawker, the United States Congress? And did I mention Sony? Yes. This is the way it happens. They all have very bad security. They have, in most cases, surprisingly poorly uh, encrypted uh, uh, password data. There, there are best practices for the way that this stuff should be saved, and apparently no one is following them. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's a domino effect. You have a bad password on a service that gets cracked, and you use that same password and your same email address everywhere else, and you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So one password is the program you got to use. I realize I'm at the risk of sounding like Luke here. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sorry, wait a second. I think we just went so far inside baseball. And I- <laughs> Luke Shepard, our local security expert, posted a picture his, of that's him. Not his real posted name. a picture of him with the afro. <laughs> uh, one password is uh, it's cross platform. It works on Mac and Windows and iPhone and iPad and Android. And um, one it it plugs into the browser and will automate the login process. You have one password you type in to unlock the keychain. It manages the password for all of your websites and will generate 
very long, random, alphanumeric with special characters, passwords. I don't know my password to any site anymore. If I didn't have one password, I wouldn't be able to log. I'd be doing password resets everywhere. Okay. Does it live on your? It lives on your hard drive or the the encrypted part? Well, so here's the thing. It it uses Dropbox to sync the keychain, the, the encrypted keychain gets synchronized between all of your devices on any platform that use one password. And, uh, and when you log in, it unencrypts your keychain and then you can use it on whatever device it is. And the Dropbox connection is built in. So every time you open it or access the keychain, it'll synchronize the latest changes. Wow. Now, can I ask a quick question? This is one password, i.e. the number one and then password, correct? Yeah. Yep. Uh, which is $9.99 on iPad apps. Now, there is another one called Keeper, which is a password thing, which is free. Do you know? Yeah, there, there, there are quite a few of these kinds of apps. One password is the one that is cross-platform and mobile and synchronizing between all of those regardless of what kind of computer or device you have. Okay. Cool. One more thing, Tim. It was announced today that Al Qaeda has appointed their number two man into the top spot, Al Zawahiri. And uh, <clears throat> what was little known, not reported, was he actually um, didn't want the position. <laughs> he said, "You know what? Um, I, I don't think this. I don't think I'm right for the job." I think the other guy's much he's more qualified than me. I just don't think I'm ready for it. And so he he passed on it. But anyway, he didn't actually. That's my 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 own spin on what but looking at the photos of Alzawa here, I noticed he has a little spot on his forehead. It's almost like he's got the bullseye already <laughs> set there because the, the they've announced the US government said that they will hunt him down as well. So So Al Qaeda works very much like the Mirror Federation in in, in Star Trek, right? Exactly. Exactly. Good luck to him, huh? <laughs> One more thing. I'd like to propose something called the Gloria Allred rule. Any story, no matter how much heat it previously had, is instantly considered over and done the second that Gloria Allred calls a press conference about it. Put away your notebooks, stop your recorders, boot down your laptops, turn off your cameras. That story is officially over and done. Does it matter if it's a congressional sex scandal? Does it matter if it's a celebrity's adultery? Does it matter if it's a terrorist nuclear device? The second Gloria Allred gets involved, we should all stop paying attention to it. That, that was passed in 1997. You were not in L.A. yet. You didn't know. In L.A. County, that's already law. <laughs> <laughs> It has been for 15 years. So, like every other celebrity, she just ignores the laws? <laughs> I, you know, this law is for the media, though, right? Right. The media should ignore once. Yeah, and you know the media. They love Gloria. They can't say no. I wish they would. That's all I'm saying. And that's... Oh, go ahead. I agree. I'm just... <laughs> You interrupted me for that? I'm just, I'm a just me too? You, <laughs> you interrupted me for a me too? I'm behind you on this, Jim, 100%. This is the one thing all night that I've completely agreed with you on. <laughs> and that's it for episode 8 of Media Leper Bebop. Please stop believing. I'm Jim Connolly, and I'd, I'd like to thank Tim Gaskell. Uh, I'm thanking uh, you too. Uh, you too? 
Aren't they playing tomorrow night? They are playing it uh, down at Angel Stadium. Ah. I'd like to thank Kirk Biglioni. You are very welcome, Jim Conley. At Media Lover Bebop, we know you have a choice of podcasts, so we're always delighted when you stick through to the part of the podcast where we tell you we're delighted that you stuck through to this part. We'll see you next week. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel. 